Well, have you ever said goodbye to a good friend? Maybe you can remember being a child, and uh, for some reason or another, you, you were at one place for a few years, and then you moved away. All your friends in the neighborhood, all your friends in school, you need to part with them. Can you remember those days? Or maybe since you've been an adult, maybe there's other people who've come into your life and uh, you've come to know them and come to love them only to see, for one reason or another, them move out of town. There's always an awful time when you say goodbye. But you know that it's not forever. You can always call them, you can always visit them, you always can write, or you can always email. You can always have them come and visit you, but, but you know that it, it's never quite going to be the same. Now, it's not all bad because you know that their friendship will be replaced by other friends that you have, and your friendship with them will be replaced by other friends in their lives, and as we have more friendships and relationships, uh, our lives are only enriched because of those things. Well, today we say goodbye to a good friend. I'm not talking about a person, I'm talking about Second Peter. For the past three and a half months, we've been walking through Second Peter, verse by verse, phrase by phrase. And this morning we're going to say goodbye to it as we finish the exposition of this book because there are other friends in the Bible that we have to meet and that we have to get acquainted with. And in fact, most notably, Jonah is next on our horizon. I'll probably take a, a week break next week, but then we'll be in Jonah uh, for four weeks shortly after that exposition, that wonderful book in the Old Testament. But it's not that we'll never see Second Peter again. Uh, we will. Second Peter will continue to have its impact upon our lives. We can always pick it up and read it. You can always go to the website and read old sermons to be reminded of things that you read. We can always pick up a commentary and read about it. We'll always be reminded of these things. But as a church, we're not going to have the depth of relationship with Second Peter like we've had these past three months as we've dug into it. There are other friends that we need to go after. Now, I trust that one of the things you will remember, however, about Second Peter is that these are his final words. These are the last things that Peter wrote. He said in chapter 1, verse 14, he said, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. Peter knew that he was going to die soon. And he knew that this very well may be the last letter that God will allow him to write. As he was saying goodbye to us, he made sure that he kept his final words on track. He didn't waste any time talking about superfluous things. No, when you're dying, there's no need to beat around the bush. No, he got down to the most important things for us to remember. In fact, I trust that you recall Second Peter is a book of remembrance. He saw his role as reminding his readers of what was most important. You can see over in chapter 1, again, verse 12 and 13, he says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. Second Peter was a book that uh, Second Peter, Peter wrote. It wasn't particularly new to his readers. They knew it, nor should it be new to us. But listen, they are important, and they are words for us to remember this day. Over in chapter 3, verse 1, Peter said the same thing. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. 
Peter's purpose in his mind was clear. He was, he was bringing to remembrance the things that the people already knew. He wanted to remind his readers of what was true, what was needed to be believed, so that even when he left, they might always be able to bring these things to remembrance. As he said in chapter 1, verse 15, it's for this reason that I've entitled my message this morning, Final Reminders. It's the final thing that Peter's writing, and as we shall see, it is a reminder of what's, what he's already spoken about. Our text this morning covers the last five verses of chapter 3. Reminding us of those things most important. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles there. Second Peter chapter 3, 14 through 18. Peter writes this, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. You read these verses and you can feel Peter's emotion. It's as if he is leaving his good friends. Twice in these five verses, he speaks to them, titles them, addresses them as beloved. They are loved by Peter. They are loved by God. He used it there in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things. He says it there in verse 17. Therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. Now, this isn't the first time he used this term of affection, beloved. In fact, it started in chapter 3, verse 1. It wasn't used before, but all of a sudden, chapter 3, verse 1, he, he says, it's now the second letter, beloved, that I'm writing to you. And then in verse 8, he says, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. And then in 14 and 17, it's almost as if he wants them to be assured. Four times in this chapter, he's expressing his, his love towards them. Growing up and welling up within him is this, this tender affection and love towards them. I think he knew it was his last thing he was going to write to them. And you know what it's like when you're actually saying goodbye to a dear friend. Maybe some of you have had children going off to college. Maybe some of you might anticipate the day you send a child off to college. Where, and we know when it's a couple months away, you, you begin to say some things maybe you haven't said before. When it's a week away, maybe you intensify those things. When it's the day of or the last hours, you, you know, you're intensifying your love and affection of talking to them about how much you love them and care for them and will be home and be ready to help them and serve them. Well, it's the same with Peter. He's just intensifying his terms of endearments. Beloved, 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 beloved. What Peter shares in these verses is very strategic. You can see the sense of how Peter is summing up everything, bringing it to a final conclusion by the repetition of the word therefore. It starts in verse 14. He says, therefore, beloved. Also verse 17 as well. Therefore, Beloved, knowing this beforehand. Therefore, is a word of conclusion. And based upon what came before, this is the proper deduction. And as we dig into these verses, like I had the privilege of doing this past week, we're going to find that these five verses are in effect a summation of all of Second Peter. He's going to pull up the themes again and again, summarizing them. In fact, verses 14 through 16 
summarize chapter 3. They're going to explain of how it is we should respond to the, the coming of Christ and how to respond to His delay. That's what these verses talk about. And that's what chapter 3 was about. It, the, the coming of Christ, but yet also His delay. And how should we respond? That's what Peter says in 14-16. to 16. Walk in holiness and regard the patience of our Lord of salvation. And then in verse 17, it's a good summary of chapter 2. How we ought to avoid false teachers. Be on your guard so you're not carried away by the air of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. And then verse 18 is a summary of chapter 1. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's how it began. So these, these final reminders are reminders that we need to hear, but they're also reminders of Second Peter summing up the whole text. Now before we dig into it, I want to make one more observation about these verses. There are four commands in these verses. The first can be seen here in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, here comes the command, be diligent to be found by Him in peace. The second command comes in verse 15. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. There's the command. The third command comes in verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, here comes the command, be on your guard. And the fourth command comes in verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm going to use these four commands, the basic structure of my four points in my outline, letting the text speak for itself. Let's look at 14. Here's what I'm going to call it. I'm going to say, Peter tells us to pursue purity. That's what he's getting at in verse 14. Pursue purity. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. This verse, as I said, begins to summarize chapter 3. It's a repetition almost exactly of, of what verse 10 says and what verse 11 says about how the, the day of the Lord is going to come. And, and since we look for those things, and since we look and hasten, verse 12, for the coming of the day of God, and since we look for the new heavens and the new earth, we ought to respond, as verse 11 says, in holy conduct and godliness. Since the heavens have passed away, since the earth will be destroyed, since the earth will be burned up, as he says, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? In other words, the, there's implication to the return of Christ. There's implication to a new heaven and a new earth. That the implication is our, our lives. We should be holy. That's separate from the evil that's around us. We should be living in godliness, right? Exhibiting the character of God for all to see. Being gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounded in loving kindness. Just like God is. That's how we should be. And as Peter said that in verse 11, so also he says it in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, since you're looking for the end, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. So our lives will be characterized by three things. By peace. Peace with God and peace with others. Listen, we will know that we will be found in peace when we rest contented in the forgiveness of our sins that are in Christ. And that we have no fear that when Christ returns, because... We know that we stand before Him blameless and complete because of our faith in Him and in His Son. And we're at peace with others. when we're found, We will be found in peace when we're living in harmony and peace with others, right? Forgiving others as we've been forgiving. Forgiven. Loving others as we have been loved. Serving others as we have been served by God. That's what it means peace. Peace with God. Peace with men. Not frightened, not agitated, not anxious, but peaceful. Peter also tells us that we'd be spotless and blameless. 
These words depict purity. That's why I'm saying pursue purity. They describe a life that has no blemishes, right? When you think of spots and blemishes, I think of a, a little boy's trousers who's been out and playing in the grass and comes back with grass stains on his pants and holes in his knees. And then when I think about being without spot, without blemish, I think of a, of a young woman's slacks who are not put on unless they've been washed and ironed and spotted just right, only if they're clean. And so also, are we to be spotless and blameless? We're to be like young lady slacks. That's what we're to be like. In a very real way, the only reason to be like this is because of Jesus. It's the only way we can be spotless and blameless, because of Him. In fact, Peter said in his first epistle, he used these very words back in chapter 1, verse 19. He says that we have been redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. No blemishes, no blots, no spots was Christ. And that's the reality of the Gospel, right? That Jesus Christ stood before God spotless and blameless. And we likewise stand before God spotless and blameless, not because of an inherent righteousness of ours, but because of a righteousness that God imputes to us by faith we believe God, God takes the righteousness, the, the spotlessness, the unblemishedness of Christ and gives it to us. We receive the righteousness of Christ because He took our penalty on the cross. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? I mean, that, that's the greatest message in the world. It's the greatest story we have to tell and we ought to tell of it often. In fact, this week I had a chance to talk with someone about Christ in the church. Well, I was just asking him whether he goes to church or anything. You no, know, not really. Invite him to Rock Valley Bible Church. And he said, oh, yeah, okay. And found out over the course of the conversation he's living with his girlfriend. And I said, well, now that can't be good, can it? And he said, no, no, actually it's, it's, it's very good because we get along pretty well. So he's like, you know, <laughs> we're like, didn't communicate that one very well, Steve. So I, I went at it again. Um, I said, no, 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 I, I, I wasn't talking about that. I was talking about it's not good from God's sight, right? I mean, how does God look upon your relationship with your girlfriend? That's all I had to say. And his face dropped and his heart sunk. And you could see conviction upon his life. I said, listen, you're in a dangerous situation. The Bible says that fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. You're living dangerously. Let that sink in for a little bit. And then, then I thought, here's what came to my mind. What, what popped in my mind was Jesus. And, and, and sinners and prostitutes and harlots loved Jesus. Why? Because he had a message of hope for them. And so I gave him a message of hope. I said, well, listen, there's good news for you. Your sins can be forgiven in Christ. Christ died upon a cross to take away sins. You just believe in him and your sins can be wiped clean. Repent of your sin and you can be forgiven. That's what church is all about. He promised to come to church. We'll see. I've had lots of people promise that before. We'll see. But that's a story that should be on our lips. We should tell the glories of the Gospel. How we can be spotless and blameless through Him. But the reality of our forgiveness is that Christ just doesn't leave us in our sin practically either. Just He wipes it away positionally, practically also. He works in us to work out a life that's spotless and blameless. In fact, that's what it says in Galatians 5. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and 
self-control and as the Spirit lives in us, works out His goodness in our lives. And I think that's the aim of Peter's words here. He's not talking about positionally in Christ. He's talking about our lives, of how, how we are to live. We're to live spotless, blameless, pure and holy lives. We are to, as I said, pursue purity. We're to be unlike the false teachers who it says in chapter 2, verse 13, who, Peter said, they are stains and blemishes. The same words using here. They are stains and blemishes. They are little boys' dirty trousers. They're not sanctified by Christ. They're not living in His power. They're living in a sinful way. And, and we need to live that way as well. Now, the reason I mention the cross, though, is because the cross is the power to that life. It's not that we stir up in ourselves the power to live a spotless and blameless life. No, it's, it's God who does it. We trust Christ. He works in us to live righteous lives. Are you pursuing purity in your lives? Is this something that, nah, doesn't really matter? Why well, come to church? Isn't that enough, Steve? No, I'm saying, are you pursuing purity? When, when daily choices come along, are you, are you consciously saying, you know what, I need to choose the pure way, not the spoiled, spotted, blemished way? Peter tells us, look here in verse 14, he says, be diligent to pursue these things. Be diligent to be found by Him in peace, right? When He's returning, right? Be diligent to pursue these things. He's telling us to make some efforts at this. Show some haste. Show some passion. Don't just sit back and think that God's going to zap you. Rather, you, you make some effort. You pursue it with diligence. Peter's already used this word on a couple of occasions in this epistle. He said in chapter 1, verse 5, because we've been given everything, applying all diligence in your faith, seek to work out your life in this way, in moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. Peter says, apply all diligence in your faith and, and see your faith working out in the way that you live. And I think the idea here is you're putting forth an effort to, to, to see God work in your life. It means that you, you read the Word of God and seek to apply it. It says you listen to the Word of God taught and, and pray for wisdom as to how to follow it. It means you apply all diligence in your prayers, pleading God to help you walk godly. It means you surround yourself with godly fellowship. You have other Christians who are going to spurn you on to love and good deeds. It means you willingly open up your life to accountability so others might call you back onto the right path when you start straying. So there's some ways to be diligent in your faith. And later on in verse 10 of chapter 1, Peter says the same, used the same word, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. Right? Make certain that you are elect, is what he's saying. And, and you make diligent certainty of that as you pursue the things of God. That's what he's talking about there. Diligent pursuit of godliness is what gives you the assurance that God indeed has called you, elected you, chosen you, because you know that God is working in your life to get there. Well, maybe you lack motivation. Maybe that's it. Oh, Steve, I, I don't know. I, it's just hard. I, I lack motivation. Well, Peter gives us motivation here in verse 14. He says, Beloved, since you look for these things, this is the cause that ought to spurn us on to a diligent pursuit of holiness. Right? Looking for these things. In other words, looking for the end. So what are you looking for? Well, in verse 11, it speaks about how we're looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. 
In verse 13 it says, according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth. And I think in verse 14 it says, as you're looking for the end, as you're looking for this day of God to come, as you're looking for the new heavens and the earth, that is a thing that should press you on to a life of purity. So church family, I encourage you to pursue purity. Pursue purity. Well, Peter then transitions then in verse 15 and 16 with our next point. He says, verse 15, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. You read that and you go, whew, Paul... Peter at this point is really meandering around. He starts by mentioning the patience of God. And then he mentions how, how Paul has been given this God, God-ordained wisdom to write letters. And then he talks about how Paul's letters sometimes are, are hard to understand. And how some distort his teaching. But, but, but the main point though is that we need to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. I know the kids are frantically looking for this point on the, my next point. I'm getting to it, okay? I just want to introduce, here's what we're doing. I see all these kids. Did you get that point? Did you get that point? Did you get that point? <laughs> Not yet. I'm kind of holding you out. Okay, it's coming. It's coming. But I just want to read 15 and, and 16 just show you how it meandered. But the main point is the first command, right? Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. It, it, it's not, the main point isn't about Paul's letter-writing ability, nor about the difficulty of Paul's words, or the twisting of Scripture by others. Those are illustrations of the main point. His main point is this, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. So here's my point. Ponder God's patience. Verse 15 and 16. There, kids, you ready now? Let, us, let a sigh of relief now. Ready? That's the idea here behind the word regard. Regard, consider, think, believe, suppose. The New American Standard Translation regard is very good. Really think about it. Ponder it is what I've, I've tried to summarize it with. Just, just, just think about it. See, there are many in Peter's day who are doubting the patience of God. And that's the thrust of the first half of chapter 3. Now we see again, Peter's just reviewing the first half of chapter 3. He's talking about the patience of God. People are saying, where's the promise of His coming? In verse 4, there's the mockers. And then Peter dealt with that. They were saying, hey listen, it's been a long time since Jesus left the earth. He's promised He'd return, but now it's been 30 years and we haven't seen Him come yet. Are you really sure Jesus is going to return? I don't think you can trust Him, guys. Peter says, oh, He will return, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come. As certain as the day is long, the day of the Lord will come. And he explained it in verse 9. The Lord is not slow about His promise. Yes, He's made a promise to come, but He's not slow about that promise. Some count slowness. We count slowness in a different way than God does. But He's patient towards you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Listen, the delay hasn't come because lack of ability in God. It hasn't, hasn't come because God has forgotten. No, it's come because God's abundant patience with us as He awaits for repentance. Now, God's patience is far beyond our patience. We don't know anyone as patient as God. For Him, He can wait a thousand years, and to Him it seems but a day. We've never experienced anyone like patience with patience like this. 
And the fault of the mockers is they didn't understand the patience of God. And so we ought to ponder His patience and catch His patience and understand His patience that we might not be swayed away by those mockers, but realize that God will fulfill His promise. And that any delay in His coming, 30 years, 2,000 years, is a picture of His patience. And of concern for us really this morning is, is verse 15. As verse 15 says, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. His patience with us who believe has given us time for, to repent. If you've repented of your sins today, you can say, well, God's patience was long enough for me. His patience with those who haven't yet believed is an opportunity for them to repent and believe today. And, and in fact, any, any one step closer, just God's extending His patience once more. I know my son, SR, has been listening to a, a CD, SR, and you talked to me last night, two nights ago, about um, terms about hell and death and dying. And he said, we are today one day closer to eternity than we were the day before. In fact, now we are one day closer than we were when you had breakfast. A couple hours closer. We're always approaching that day. It's coming closer and closer and closer. That's God's patience that extends that. And any delay can only be attributed to the patience of God in delaying. This wasn't some new teaching that Peter came up with. No, this is the teaching of Paul as well. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. It's also in all his letters, speaking to them of these things. Now, there's some marvelous things going on in these verses. just want to give you some observations about what's taking place. First, there's reconciliation. Maybe you remember the time when Paul opposed Peter to his face. Publicly, he came up to Peter and said that he stood condemned because at one point, Peter used to eat with the, the Gentiles. Right? Being able to eat the pork and the things which weren't kosher for the Jews. But when the Jews came, Peter then feared and he, he came over to the Jews and tried to bring the Gentiles back to them. And Peter said, Paul said, no, you're distorting the Gospel of Christ. You, as he said in Galatians 2 verse 11, stand condemned because you're distorting the Gospel. And yet here in Peter's epistle we see them reconciled. Peter is commending Paul without a hint of conflict between the two. Another thing going on here is acknowledgement of Paul's letters. He says, just as he wrote in all his letters, writing even to you is what he said. Perhaps this is more some, some circular letters, letters that just go out in general, or, or letters that went out to Colossae or Philippi or Galatia, which was spread abroad. He says, he wrote these letters to you. We have in our Bibles 13 letters that Paul wrote. Peter knew of these letters and made mention of them. But beyond the mere acknowledging of letters, Peter also affirmed their divine origin. He says that he wrote these according to the wisdom given him. In other words, Paul was writing with divine wisdom. It wasn't just because Paul was a really smart guy, which he was, but it's because he was given divine wisdom into these things to write. I think Peter had in mind the inspiration process, as he said in chapter 1, verse 21, about how no prophecy is ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I think he would say here rightly that Paul didn't write on his own, but was moved by God as he wrote. And especially, you can even see that, as it mentions down at the end of verse 16, talking about how these people distort 
Paul's writings as they do the rest of the Scriptures. Paul's writing was the Scripture because they were distorting other writings along with the rest of the Scriptures. So he's talking there, I think, about the inspiration, the divine origin of Paul's letters. Another thing going on here in these words is the acknowledgement of the difficulty of understanding the Bible. This would be an encouragement to some of us that the Bible is, is difficult. He says, in which are some things hard to understand. I mean, let's face it, the Bible is a difficult book. There are some things in it which are difficult to understand. We can study and study and study and study and still be stumped over meaning of a particular passage. You ever experienced that? I experience it every week, all right? This pastor's like, what? What exactly does this mean? What? What does this mean? It's true of many prophetic passages in the Bible. They're hard to fully grasp. Paul's Writings also have some difficult philosophical questions. How is it that God is absolutely sovereign over everything? He directs human hearts. And yet how is it that He holds us responsible? Very hard things. Paul puts both those up there. He's like, I can't understand it, Paul. Peter would say that's difficult. Also difficulties come in dealing with the mysteries of the Godhead or, or the Incarnation or, or Christ in us and how He works sanctification. Lots of things which Paul wrote about, which are hard to understand. And I just say this, would you expect anything less from a book that God wrote? I mean, I would be troubled if I understood everything in the book. Say, God really wrote this? I can understand this. Maybe, maybe I'm... But to see that God wrote things that, you know what, I, I can't understand, then, you know what, I, I think there's more going on here than, than just my puny brain. I think it's God's. I'm encouraged by that. This has implications on your own Bible study. When you open your Bible to read it, there may be things that are hard and difficult to understand. You ought not to just throw it away and just say, oh, I can't understand that. No, you should work at it, but realize that it is hard to understand. Don't let the difficulty of the task shrink you away from what your soul needs to grow in godliness. Don't let the hard text shrink you away from being found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. Listen, we're prone to laziness. I'm prone to laziness. Are you guys prone to laziness? Even with Bible reading, you read something that's hard, and you just, oh, I don't, I don't want to think about that today. I'll just let it go. We are prone that way. And, and I just say, reading and studying the Bible can be work, but it's needed for your soul. Right? Just, just as we need protein, right? we need to eat our meat to grow, to build our muscles and be strong, so we also need to eat the meat of the Word. We can't just live on candy, can we? And too often, people will just be satisfied with a light and fluffy candy devotional. But we need to attack some of the, the difficult things. But, but notice what Peter says here, though, and this, this, is, this is a great encouragement for you. He says in verse 16, in which are some things hard to understand. In which are some things hard to understand. What's, what's the corollary truth to that? There are some things hard to understand. There are many things that are easy to understand. That's the corollary to that. You can read throughout Paul's epistles and pick up on the majority of what he says without difficulty. It's not hard in many ways to understand the message of the apostles. In fact, that's what makes the Bible such a great book. There, there, there are books of the Bible, passages of the Bible that can stump the greatest minds ever created and yet there are portions and books of the Bible that are so easy that even the smallest child can understand. 
That's why you can read the Bible as a family so easily. And some of it, you won't get, none of you get. You just read it and say, well, I don't know what that was, but there's lots of it that we can read and understand. But too often people use the difficult passages as an excuse to neglect the easy, simple ones. At least Mark Twain, the skeptic and critic of the church, was honest when he said this, It ain't those parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. He was unbelieving, and he said, well, there's lots of the Bible I don't understand, but there's parts of the Bible I do understand, and that's the part that bothers me because it condemns my life. But he still remained a skeptic his whole life. But how difficult is it to understand Peter's main point here in Second Peter? I think here it is. Verse 15, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. I say, have you understood that? Have you regarded the patience of the Lord as salvation? Have you taken advantage of the patience of God and repented of your sin. That's what it means to understand that. My son and I have just recently memorized together Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found and call upon Him while He is near. He is near today. He can be found today. Just turn and repent from your sins. There will be a day when it's too late. If that day finds you unrepentant and unbelieving, it means you've failed to understand the most simple truth in all the Bible, that the patience of our God is to be regarded as salvation. Oh, it's easy. It's easy. Ponder God's patience. Now, there's some who disdain God's patience, like verse 4. Where is the promise that was coming? We also see that in the end of verse 16. Paul's writing, speaking in them of these things, the patience of God, the return of Christ, the day of the Lord, some of this is hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. Rather than taking the clear call of the Scriptures to repent, they focus their attention on the most difficult things. Oh, let's study prophecy. And they study prophecy and study prophecy and never getting around to the purpose of prophecy is to call us to repent. They never get around that. They distort them. They twist them as they do the rest of the Scriptures. Peter says it leads to their own destruction. They're destroyed because they didn't repent, which leads us nicely onto my third point. So I'm calling this, be on your guard. Be on your guard. The implication, be on your guard so you're not destroyed. Verse 17, Peter writes, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. These, these words pick up from verse 16. Talking about these untaught, unstable people who distort the Scriptures, ignore the clear call of God upon their lives. And Peter says, you know that there are people like this. You know that they won't merely stand by and be idle. You know that they're going to be going out to persuade, to pull many away from the truth and pursue after them. But don't be carried away from them. Stand firm in your faith. Mentioning the false teachers here in verse 17 brings us back to chapter 2. Right here again, Peter's summarizing the whole letter. Chapter 2 is all about false teachers. He tells all the characteristics about them. In fact, I counted up more than two dozen characteristics of them. Just think about what Peter said. It says they teach destructive heresies, verse 1. They deny the master who bought them, verse 1. They seek and gain a following, verse 2, to their own destruction. They pursue sensuality, verse 2. In verse 3, we see they're greedy and they exploit others. In verse 10, we see that they indulge the flesh and 
despise authority, that they're daring and self-willed. Verse 12, we see they're unreasoning animals. Verse 13, they suffer wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their stains and blemishes, they revel in their deceptions. They carouse with the people of God. They have eyes full of adultery. They entice unstable souls, like verse 14 says. They forsake the right way, according to verse 15. They love the wages of unrighteousness, according to verse 17. Verse 18, they entice by fleshly desires. Verse 19, they promise freedom, although they themselves are slaves of corruption. Verse 20, they're entangled in the defilements of the world. In 21, it says they've turned away from the Holy Commandment. And when Peter seeks to summarize these men, review everything about them, he says in verse 17 that they are unprincipled men. That is, they have no law to govern their behavior. Instead, they're driven by their lusts. Here's their principle. If it feels good, they do it. They're unprincipled. There's no law within. There's no constraint. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. And these men are headed for destruction, as it says in verse 17. Don't be carried away and fall from your own steadfastness because, as verse 16 says, they're headed to their own destruction. In chapter 2, Peter mentioned their destruction five different times about these people who, who do this thing and who deny the Master and follow their own sensuality and pursue their own ungodliness, seek to persuade others. They're going to be destroyed. Paul said that in verse 1. They're bringing swift destruction upon themselves. They deny Jesus, and thereby denying Jesus, they're bringing destruction upon themselves. He says in verse 3 that their destruction isn't asleep. Oh, it's coming. It may be delayed now, but it's coming. He says in verse 9, God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. They will be destroyed like unreasoning animals in verse 12. And verse 17 the black darkness has been reserved for them. And in light of the danger of these men who have crept into the church, Peter says, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Just don't accept everything that comes into the church. He said, oh, that's gospel truth. No, these people are coming into the church trying to persuade away. Rather be like the Bereans who tested everything. Watch closely the character of those who you're following. They may be headed for destruction so don't follow along with them like the Pied Piper. Listen, the danger is real. The danger is real, church family. Don't just rest upon your laurels, right? Once saved, always saved. Yep. Now that's true. Once saved, always saved. Absolutely. You can't be unregenerated, okay? Once, once you've been opened your eyes, your eyes won't be blinded again. Once you're made alive, you're not going to be made dead again, okay? It's true. Once saved, always saved. But don't think that that phrase, that catch, that truth of the Bible, means I don't need to be diligent. The fact that you keep being saved is, is through your diligence to pursue the Lord. That's what it says. That's what the Bible says. In fact, that's what Peter says in verse 14. Right? We need to be diligent regarding our pursuit of holiness. Verse 17, we need to be diligent regarding our own steadfastness. Consider the way of the false teachers if you think, hey, I'm okay. Verse 20, chapter 2, is one of the most scary verses in all of 2 Peter. These people here come to a knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They come to know about Jesus. 
And through that knowledge, they escape the defilements of the world. And if you look upon such people, you say, wow, they're talking about Jesus. They, they, they know about Jesus. They've escaped the defilements of the world. They're doing pretty good. Once saved, always saved. In reality, these men had no faith. They had no faith. Verse 20 speaks nothing of faith. They just said this knowledge of God pulled them away from the time. But again, what happened to them? They are again entangled in these things and overcome. He says the last state's worse for them than the first. They just knew it. They looked it. But they weren't. And they returned back to their vomit, their mire. And Peter says here in verse 17, Be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the air of such men. Be on your guard, and let me put it this way, so that you won't be like other false teachers who have fallen away and fallen astray, who knew and experienced freedom, escaped from the world, but then fell back into their own sins. I was reading recently a book by uh, Jerry Bridges, Discipline of Grace. It's a great book. God's Role and Our Role in the Pursuit of Holiness. It's a good book. He talked about this, this very concept here about um, just maybe presuming upon your salvation. Presuming that things are okay. Once saved, always saved. Hey, I'm saved. I'm okay. And um, Jerry Bridges says, I was telling a friend about an adulterous affair another Christian worker had become involved in. He said, it wasn't gossip because he didn't identify the person. My friend didn't know who it was. He was just kind of talking about the situation in general. And, and I said to my friend, what I learn, when I learn about things like that, it scares me. I think, could it happen to me? He's thinking how Peter's saying, be on your guard. Oh, can it happen to me? I need to guard myself that it doesn't happen to me because I'm scared it might. And if you weren't scared, Peter wouldn't say, be on your guard. He'd just say, oh, don't worry about it. You're okay. He'd just say, be on your guard. And then my friend responded that he was not concerned for himself because he had long ago set up certain guidelines to govern his association with women. Oh, it's not going to happen to me. i got these guidelines. His self-confidence, Bridges writes, startled me. While I appreciated the guidelines he had established for himself, I could not help but think of 1 Corinthians 10:12. So if you think that you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And then he said this comment, Remember the Sunday school teacher sitting alone in church who was approached by a lonely woman? And back a few pages earlier, he told this story about the Sunday school teacher had kind of shown up a little early, kind of was sitting down getting things, and this woman, lonely woman came up and sat down and just began to pour her heart out about uh, her husband forsaking her and leaving her and developed a quick intimacy there and just developed a relationship there. Innocent, in the church, in a room. And and Bridges' comment was how easy that is then to develop wrongly. And, and he said that all these, these safeguards and protection that his friend set up wouldn't have guarded against that situation. He says, we can never get to the place where we don't need to watch, even in areas where we think we are strong. As John Owen said, when indwelling sin is least felt, it is in fact most powerful. When indwelling sin is least felt, it is in fact most powerful because we can think that we stand firm. But Peter's point here in verse 17 is take heed lest you fall. Be on your guard. Don't be carried away by these people. Don't fall from your own steadfastness, but stand firm. That's the message of chapter 2. They didn't grow. We need to be growing. Verse 18, my last point. 
Grow in grace. Peter writes, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This verse really is a summation of the entire message of 2 Peter. What's the theme of 2 Peter again? Know and grow. Great, thank you. Know and grow. We see it right here, right? Grow in the grace and knowledge, right? Grow in knowledge. Know and then grow in it, right? But even in a, in a special way, this is a summary of chapter 1 because that's where you see know and grow coming out bigger than in any chapter. We see that in chapter 1, verse 3. Peter said that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Right? As we, as we know Jesus and, and we know Him and, and His power and His, His excellence, then we have everything that we need to grow, is what he's saying. There's nothing that we lack to live a godly life. We have no need to look anyplace else other than to Jesus for godly life because He's the one that gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And since we have everything, Peter then instructs them to a, a diligent growth. Verse 5. For this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. your brotherly kindness, love. There's this, this progression of, of growing, right? If you, if you take, first of all, your, your faith and then you grow in moral excellence... And as you grow in your moral excellence, you grow in your knowledge. And as you grow in your knowledge, you grow in your self-control. And there's just this, this ascending growth. It's a pattern here in verses 1 through 5. That's what Peter says, gives a picture of these things. And then in verse 8, he says this, if these qualities, the seven qualities he, met, he mentioned in verses 5 through 7, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking here about an increasing Godliness and knowledge and, and love and brotherly love and, and self-control and moral excellence. Talk about these things growing. So that's what we're doing. We're to know that we have all sufficiency in Christ and then grow in that. It's the message of First Peter is the message of chapter 1. But look at the two things he tells us to grow in. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's take that first one. He says, grow in grace. We can easily just pass that phrase off and say, grow in grace. I mean, that's, that's just religious jargon. Wasn't grow in grace. Oh, good. You know, you put that on a, on a plaque or something. Say, grow in grace. But, but listen, I want you to think about this for a bit. We're to grow in grace. What, what's grace? Grace is God's favor upon us. It's His kindness. It's His strength. It's His working. So we are to grow in God's favor upon us. Now, listen, it doesn't mean to, to work and do things in an effort to please God that He rewards us with His grace. Because grace, by definition, is unmerited gift. And so it, it's not that we work to get, to get grace, because that defies the very definition. Paul said, the one who works, his wages credit him as... To the one who works... His wage is not credit as a favor, but as what is due. Right? You put your hours in at work, you get money from your employer, you don't say, oh, grace. No, you say, it'll do to me. But Peter says here to grow in grace. So what does that mean? Grow in grace. I think Peter's talking here about a growing in our dependence upon the Lord. He's talking about growing in our faith. 
He's talking about growing in our understanding about how all that we have is only by His mercy and His grace. You grow in grace by leaning more and more upon Him. Realizing that any gift you have is only because He's given it to you in the first place. Think about this. You have life only because God has given it to you. You have food only because God has given it to you. You have clothing only because God has given it to you. You have faith in Christ only because God has given it to you. You have forgiveness of sins only because God has given it to you. You have the Scriptures to guide you only because God has given it to you. You have promises of hope only because God has given us promises. You have an inheritance waiting for you in heaven only because it's God who has given it to us. I love what 1 Corinthians 4.7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? Okay? Zero. Nothing. Zip. Nada. Noodles. Nothing. Church family, embrace this fact. Love this fact. Rejoice in this fact. Always ask yourself, what do I have that I didn't receive? It's nothing. Everything's been given to you. As you grow more and more convinced of that, I think that's growing in grace. And it will transform your life. It will transform your attitudes. It will transform your perspective. It will transform your relationship to grow in grace. The second thing that Peter tells us here to grow in is grow in knowledge. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If Second Peter has been about anything, it's been about the priority of pursuing a proper knowledge of God and His gifts to us. We need, Second Peter is about knowing what is right, what is true. Sixteen times in three chapters, Peter mentions knowledge. Okay, do the math. It's about five times each chapter. He's talking about knowing knowledge. In fact, one commentator outlined the entire book around this theme. This is John MacArthur. He outlined it. Know your salvation, chapter 1. Know your scriptures, the end of chapter 1. Know your adversaries, chapter 2. Know your prophecy, chapter 3. No, 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 no. And he was merely just picking up on this theme of knowing and knowing and knowing. Peter instructs us to grow in our knowledge. How do you grow in your knowledge of Christ? Maybe a child can help me with this one. How do you grow in knowledge of Christ? Kendra, how do you grow? By reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. There's another way you grow. Read your Bible. Pray every day. Okay? It's as simple as that. You read your Bible to hear from God. You pray to commune with God. What's so about? Read our Bibles to learn of God and His grace. Read our Bibles to remind ourselves of the grace. Because naturally, we don't think like this. Naturally, we don't think that everything we have is given to us by God. Naturally, we think that, oh, I've earned some things. It's not. And, and, and why do we pray? We pray to God to teach us of His grace. We pray for God to help us live His grace in our lives and the lives of others. Well, how well are you doing in pursuing the knowledge of God? How well are you doing in your Bible reading? How well are you doing in your prayer? You know, I'm planning even next week to preach us a sermon on that. Uh, I'm thinking about John 15 and just talking about abiding in Christ as I read today. What does it mean to abide? What does it mean to have everything 
Christ. What does it mean that apart from me you can't do anything? What does that mean? Just unpack that. It's a nice wrap-up of Second Peter. How important is it for us to grow in the knowledge of, of Christ? I just encourage you to do that. Don't say it's too hard. Just no, you, you got to. You got to be vigilant in this matter. Find a plan. I love what the ladies' Bible study have done. Uh, for 30 days, they said, basically, why don't you all make a commitment to spend time in the Psalms every day? Find a place, time, and a plan. And uh, basically, they've been getting together for the ladies' Bible study and saying, well, how's it been going? You've been pursuing this plan. Has God stirred in your heart and stirred in your life and given you a, a delight and a joy in Him? And another testimony through Yvonne of some of you ladies that, yeah, God has, God has stirred me as I have sought diligently to pursue Him. The, he's given me much, given me joy and happiness and grace and just been a good time. Very helpful. And that's what he's talking about here. I want to probably spend a Sunday dwelling on that. Well, Peter concludes these words, To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. You think about the the antecedent to the pronoun there, to Him. Who's he talking about? To Him be the glory. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Christ. To Jesus be the glory. Now, think about this. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, the Lord said, I am the Lord, that is my name. I am Jehovah, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. And yet, who's receiving glory here? Jesus Christ. You run into a Jehovah Witness this week? Watch us take him to 2 Peter 3.18. Jesus is receiving the glory. And it's not just today. It's now He's receiving the glory. It's to the day of eternity He will receive the glory. And you look in, in heaven and you see God the Father on the throne. You see the Lamb right next to Him receiving glory and honor and praise. Worship in heaven, Revelation 4 is God-centered. Worship in heaven, Revelation 5 is Christ-centered. We will sing forever the glories of the redemption. Forever we will sing redemption songs. That's why the glory goes to Christ. The day of eternity. And I just say this, may our lives be filled with worshiping Him. Well, let's say goodbye to our good friend, Second Peter, in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, I would pray that we would have learned over these three months the lesson well to know and grow. And it's a lesson we read from Second Peter that we need to continue to do that. We need to be reminded of those things and so I pray You'd help, help to remind us of those things. May Christ receive all the glory and praise from these things. I pray that You'd bring Second Peter to mind perhaps this week. Stir our hearts afresh to love and pursue Him. I pray that You would help us in these matters, Lord, to pursue purity and to ponder God's patience and to be on our guard and to grow in grace. We can't do it on our own. Lord, we need Your help. We pray You'd help us. In Christ's name, Amen. Oh, just a few announcements. We have Friday night flocks at the Reach House. We have an oratorio coming up. If you have questions about that, talk with Juanita. Everything else is pretty normal going on, and we got one announcement. Go ahead, Toby. Stand up.
right, you are dismissed. Have a great Lord's Day.